We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 575 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Thursday, May 18th, 2023. Hey, perhaps we need to rethink everything with our Wizards. I mean, the NBA is down to its Final Four in the playoffs. Each conference finals includes a seven or eight seed. Uh, The eight-seeded Miami Heat is in the Eastern Conference Finals. The seven-seeded Los Angeles Lakers are in the Western Conference Finals. And the Heat is on. Uh, The Heat on Wednesday night won Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals. A 123-116 win at the Boston Celtics. The Heat in the third quarter scored 46 points. Most points ever by the Heat in a quarter in a playoff game. Uh, So many of us, myself included, scoffed at, mocked the notion of the Wizards making the playoffs as a seven or eight seed. Hey, (laughs) maybe we were all wrong. Maybe the Wizards could be exactly where the heat is right now. Uh, Then again, maybe not. Hello and welcome to this Thursday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, the only Washington, D.C. sports podcast or show for which there is a new episode each weekday, Monday through Friday, with each episode out oh so early each weekday morning. Uh, This is the show that wakes up with you. This is the show that is there for you as you get your day going. This is the show, never forget, that follows Washington, D.C. area sports so that you don't have to. Because following sports is work. You have enough going on in your life. Let us do the work for you. Uh, Coming up next segment, a very special guest, uh, ESPN senior writer Don Van Nata Jr. Uh, Throughout the Dan Snyder saga, there have been many good things written by many good people, but the investigative work that has been done by Don Van Nata Jr. has been outstanding. Not one, not two, but three major reports on Dan Snyder since the start of last October, including a piece that came out just this past Friday afternoon, very interestingly, just a few hours before the big announcement, the joint announcement from Commander's co-owners and co-CEOs Dan and Tanya Snyder and from Josh Harris on behalf of the Harris Ownership Group announcing 
that the Snyders and the Harris Group have entered into a purchase and sale agreement for the Commanders. Uh, Don Van Nata Jr. is extremely well-versed in all that has been going on with Dan Snyder. Uh, Don is very well connected uh, regarding the sale of the Commanders. And so we are going to have a lengthy conversation about everything, okay, including why truly Dan is selling the team, uh, where things stand with the Mary Jo White investigation, where things stand with Dan, per Don's reporting, uh, wanting to limit the NFL's releasing of the findings of the investigation, Uh, the likelihood of Dan being indemnified, Uh, what Don makes of the Josh Harris group, and a lot more. And the a lot more includes some outstanding (laughs) detail from Don Van Nata Jr. on Dan Snyder's relationship with Dallas Cowboys owner, president, and general manager Jerry Jones, who, by the way, Don knows quite well. Don Van Nata Jr., he just might be the number one investigative reporter in sports journalism right now, and he is on this show next segment with a deep dive on Dan Snyder and the sale of the Commanders. Uh, Also on the show, we'll talk Nationals and Orioles, as this is a podcast that uh, talks about actual games, uh, segments on the Nats, O's, Capitals, Wizards, Maryland football, Maryland basketball, Georgetown basketball, and more after each team's game. Uh, The Nats lost at the Miami Marlins, the fraudulent (laughs) Miami Marlins 4-3 on Wednesday evening. I shall explain what I mean by the fraudulent Miami Marlins later in the show, but a uh, rather uneven outing for Nats starting pitcher Mackenzie Gore on Wednesday evening. The O's, though, they won again. A 3-1 win over the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yard. Starting pitcher Kyle Bradish, very good. The O's have won 24 of their last 34 games. If you are an O's fan, as I know many of you are, be excited. Be very excited. The O's have the second best record in the majors, 28 and 15. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback on our Wizards. Once again, being done dirty by the NBA Draft Lottery. Uh, The Wizards for Tuesday night's NBA Draft Lottery had the eighth best odds to win the draft lottery. To win the Victor Wambanyana sweepstakes, the Wizards wound up with the number eight overall pick in the 2023 NBA draft. The Bullets slash Wizards have participated in an NBA draft lottery 23 times. The team has received a pick better than the team's pre-lottery position a mere three times. And the reveal that the Wizards actually did come close to winning the lottery an absolute killer. Uh, tweet from NBA insider Ben Golliver of the Washington Post on Tuesday night, quote, the San Antonio Spurs won the NBA draft lottery and the right to select Victor Wembanyama with the ping pong ball combo 14-5-8-2. After the first three numbers were picked, the Washington Wizards had six of the possible 11 remaining numbers, 7, 9, 10, 12, 13, and barely missed, end quote. Tweet from Powered by Optimism, typical whiz picking eighth. Uh, Gee, that's not a very optimistic tweet, Powered by Optimism. Uh, Tweet from Tommy, they are irrelevant (laughs) to the NBA 
tweet from Gordon, rigged. <laughs> you may be onto something, Gordon. A tweet from DC Pac-Man. Aren't wizards supposed to be these magical beings? Lotteries must be their weakness. A tweet from Hardy5. Another low-ceiling prospect is on his way to Washington. A tweet from Teth Adam. The wizards also lost the tiebreaker coin flip with the Indiana Pacers before the lottery. Just an organization that loses with uncommon regularity. A loser franchise you might say. Uh, tweet from Ron, treadmill of mediocrity. Uh, yeah, Tuesday night was something. The more that I think about what went down, the more that I am like infuriated with what happened uh, with our Wizards. The Bullets slash Wizards, uh, they have not advanced past the second round of the NBA playoffs since 1979. Uh, the team has not had a 50-win regular season since the 1978-1979 season. Those are harsh pathetic realities. Uh, those realities start with the team's management, okay? However, there is an element of bad luck here too. I mean, the team that won the draft lottery on Tuesday night, the San Antonio Spurs. Yes, the Spurs have been run in so much better of a way than the Bullets slash Wizards have been run. But what also is true is this. The Spurs now have won a draft lottery three times, 1987, 1997, and 2023. The number one picks in the NBA drafts for those years, David Robinson, Tim Duncan, and almost certainly Victor Wembanyama. The Wizards have won a draft lottery two times, 2001 and 2010. The number one picks in the NBA drafts for those years, Kwame Brown and John Wall. Uh, now, look, John at his peak was a very good player, but he was never a transformational player like a David Robinson or a Tim Duncan or maybe slash probably a Victor Wembanyama. Winning an NBA draft lottery is one thing. Winning an NBA draft lottery in a year in which the number one pick in the NBA draft is a true franchise changer is another thing. The Wizards, even when they've had the good luck of winning an NBA draft lottery, have not had the good luck of the number one pick in the NBA draft that year being a true franchise changer. Uh, email from Connor Davis on Commander's head coach Ron Rivera writes, Connor, Al, it's time for Ron to go. I went back and listened to Ron's introductory press conference and a few things stuck out. Uh, Dan Snyder said, quote, the Redskins have needed a culture change, someone who can bring a winning cultural to our organization, end quote. Yes, he said cultural. Uh, I give credit to Ron because he accomplished his priority task, a culture change. The team drafts high-character players with impressive accolades to prove to us how high-character those players are. But that hasn't led to a winning culture. No one cares if our players got straight A's in middle school, attended Sunday school, or helped an old lady cross the street. We want to win football games. I understand that if you have the same grade for two players, the character stuff can be a tiebreaker, but we make the character stuff our mission. I don't care if we have the church choir or if these guys were in juvie before college. <laughs> the bottom line is that Ron is not one. He has had three years, now four drafts, and should have an entire staff and roster of his type of coaches and players. Ron actually mentioned in his presser that he didn't want a five-year rebuild, and neither did Dan. Well, Ron is in year four, Dan is selling the team, and hopefully we are only a few weeks away from this team being run by a competent owner. 
Hopefully, the Harris group will draft players who are great at their positions instead of just being good at several positions. The emphasis on position flex gets on my nerves, and I can't wait to not have to hear that dumb philosophy again. (laughs) Thanks, Al. Always love listening to your show in the morning. Well, thank you for that, Connor. Uh, Yeah, man, when Ron Rivera's time as Washington head coach is done, whenever that is, uh, we will bid a fond farewell to the phrase, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, thank you. Position flex. Uh, There's no question that Ron Rivera as Washington head coach has not won enough. Uh, He, over three seasons, has yet to have a winning regular season, and the team has collapsed down the stretch of each of the last two seasons. Washington in weeks 14 through 17 of each of the last two regular seasons is a combined 0 and 7. Uh, I actually think that the team's roster has gotten to a point of being decent as in middle of the pack in the NFL. But if you break down the team's last two seasons from purely an on-the-field standpoint, uh, here to me are the three biggest things that have gone wrong. A, quarterback play, which has not been good enough in either season. B, the complete collapse of the team's offensive line this past season. And C, the horrendous play of the team's defense over the first eight games of the 2021 regular season. And if you dig deep on those three things, what you find is a mixture of roster construction and coaching issues. Uh, Ron Rivera, of course, is the team's head coach in a coach-centric approach. He is both the head coach and the person in charge of player personnel. He has been mediocre in each role. Uh, He hasn't been bad in each role, but you can't say that he has been good in each role. He has been mediocre in each role, and that's why the results on the field have been mediocre. And mediocre isn't good enough. Ron does deserve credit for improving the culture of the organization and for some shrewd draft picks and free agent signings and for winning the NFC East in the 2020 season and for the four-game winning streak in the 2021 regular season and for the two three-game winning streaks in the 2022 regular season. But the bottom line is that Ron, over three regular seasons as Washington head coach, is 22-27-1. and Not good enough. In an NFL in which we see quick turnarounds all of the time, 22, 27, and 1 over three regular seasons is not good enough. Well, also not good enough is what's happening with home and auto insurance these days. Uh, The home and auto insurance markets are messes right now. Uh, We are routinely seeing 20% increases in home and auto insurance, even When the account is clean, meaning no accidents or violations on the auto insurance and no claims on the property insurance, uh, you right now have every reason to shop your home and auto insurance. That's why you should go with BMC Insurance. Check out BMC Insurance. Go to insurancebmc.com. Uh, You'll be put in touch with the owner and president, Matt Brooks, a loyal listener of this podcast, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Uh, BMC Insurance, it offers home, auto, and also small business insurance in Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and North Carolina. Uh, BMC Insurance is an independent insurance agency, meaning that it has many, as in dozens, of insurance carriers it works with to make sure that clients are always paying competitive rates. Uh, What's especially great about BMC Insurance is that it has relationships with its clients. Uh, BMC Insurance is a trusted advisor 
for your insurance needs. BMC Insurance continues to work with clients after sales. Uh, It has team members who actually shop clients' insurance every year when they renew. And BMC Insurance does this proactively so that you don't have to. BMC Insurance will save you time and money. And perhaps most telling, BMC Insurance's client retention rates historically are much higher than industry averages. When people get BMC Insurance, they stay with BMC Insurance. Don't get gouged on your home and auto insurance. Check out BMC Insurance. Go to insurancebmc.com. Talk to my guy, Matt Brooks, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. And BMC Insurance does offer small business insurance. So if you're looking for general liability, workers' comp, or commercial auto insurance, BMC Insurance can help. Visit insurancebmc.com. That's insurancebmc.com. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Well, the finalizing of the sale of the Commanders, of course, cannot come soon enough. But at least to me, it does remain amazing that just six and a half months ago, the notion of Dan Snyder selling the team seemed so far-fetched. Not until this past November 2nd did Dan selling the team become truly plausible. Uh, November 2nd was when we got the shocking announcement, the statement from the Commanders confirming a report from Forbes earlier that morning that the team's co-owners and co-CEOs, Dan and Tanya Snyder, were exploring a sale of the team that they had, quote, hired B of A securities to consider potential transactions, end quote. And now here we are awaiting the finalizing of the sale off the big announcement this past Friday afternoon, uh, the formal joint announcement from Dan and Tanya Snyder and from Josh Harris on behalf of the Harris Ownership Group announcing the Snyders and the Harris Group having entered into a purchase and sale agreement for the commanders. But also this past Friday afternoon was yet another major report from ESPN on Dan Snyder. Uh, The crux of this report was that Dan wants the NFL to limit the release of the Mary Jo White report. And this ESPN report was co-authored by the man who joins me now, ESPN senior writer Don Van Nata Jr., who has done some outstanding and ultra-significant reporting in this Dan Snyder saga. ESPN last October 13th came out with an explosive piece regarding Dan Snyder. Headline, quote, sources Commander's Boss Snyder claims dirt on NFL owners Goodell, end quote. Uh, The piece made it clear that the NFL wanted Dan Snyder out as commander's owner. Uh, The piece said that Dan Snyder had said that he had dug up dirt on other NFL owners and on NFL commissioner Roger Goodell. Uh, And among the authors of the piece was Don Van Nata Jr. Uh, ESPN this past February 28th came out with a piece with a headline, quote, how a disputed $55 million loan plays into Fed's probe of commanders, end quote. Uh, The basis of that piece, uh, which was extremely lengthy, uh, was that a secret $55 million loan that Dan took out in December 2018 without the required approval of the Redskins' then-minority owners, Robert Rothman, Dwight Shar, and Fred Smith, had become a primary focus of federal prosecutors in Virginia who were investigating allegations of financial misconduct by Dan Snyder and the team. Uh, This report from ESPN was written by... Don Van Nata Jr. Uh, Don joined ESPN in January 2012 off having worked for the New York Times and the Miami Herald. Uh, you can follow Don on Twitter at DVNJR. Uh, Don, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? 
Thank you, Al. I'm doing well, and it's great to be with you today. So years ago, there was a joke that if Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes was knocking on your door, you ran and hid (laughs) because you knew that nothing good was coming. Is that how it now is for Dan Snyder with you? When Don Van Nyder Jr. comes knocking, uh, Dan better run and hide. I don't know how he feels about me, having never spoken with him. That's a very high compliment. You're paying me, putting me in the same uh, sentence as Mike Wallace, who's one of my journalism heroes. But I've been at this now since last summer. Uh, We teamed up, uh, myself and my colleague Seth Wickersham and Tisha Thompson, work with John Kime, of course, the great uh, ESPN uh, beat reporter on the Commanders. To really, you know, dig deeply into Dan Snyder's ownership. And uh, it's pretty much exclusively all I've done since last summer. I've taken a few detours to write some stories about Jerry Jones. Um, but you know, there's so much here. And uh, we're very proud of the work we've done. And obviously, we're not alone. The Washington Post and uh, other uh, great investigative reporters have also done uh, some incredible groundbreaking work on Snyder and his uh, ownership of the team since 1999. What you write for ESPN, these lengthy, ultra-detailed investigative pieces, how do you approach writing them? I mean, do you construct an outline and then write off the outline? Do you start writing and then what you're writing ends up changing over time? I'm just curious about the process by which you do what you do. No, it does. It does change over time. Uh, Every story obviously is different. Um, The story that I did back in February about uh, Dan Snyder's $55 million credit line, a secret credit line, at least a secret that Dan knew about, but not his three billionaire limited partners. That story is a document-based story. And so once I was able to obtain the arbitration petition that the limited partners had filed with the NFL, Uh, And I didn't get that until December, even though I first heard about it in October. So it took me two months to get that key document. That's a story that kind of writes itself off the document. But other work that I've done where you're chipping away at the story, talking to sources, uh, mostly on background. Most of the people that we've quoted in these stories are background sources, though we do have some on the record as well. Uh, The story evolves and it changes. And the more you find out, the more leads you get, the more uh, pathways you have to go down to try to get – you know, the the best, most complete story you can get. And our goal in October, the story we did in October, where we revealed that Snyder was telling other owners that he had dug up dirt on owners and on NFL commissioner Roger Goodell, the, the really origin of that story was a very simple question, Al, and it's this question. Why is Dan Snyder still an owner in the NFL? Right After the Beth Wilkinson investigation, uh, after the Gruden leaks that we saw in October of 2021, after the congressional investigation that completely hammered him, uh, we now know there's a criminal investigation in Virginia. Why is the NFL continuing to allow Snyder to be an owner? Very, very simple question we posed in the summer of last year. And uh, the result of that was that in-depth story that we published in October that I worked on and co-wrote with uh, Seth Wickersham and Tisha Thompson. Well, I remember that report well. I think that a lot of people listening remember that report well because that report came out on October 13th. It was a Thursday morning. Uh, It was the morning of a game for the Commanders, uh, what ended up being their 12-7 win at the Chicago Bears on Thursday Night Football in a game that uh, set back offensive football (laughs) by about 50 years. Uh, But that was such an interesting piece for so many reasons. One of the best aspects of the piece was the nature of the relationship between Dan Snyder and Dallas Cowboys owner, president, and general manager, 
Jerry Jones. Uh, you've written extensively about Jerry, so you're a very good person of whom to ask the following. When it comes to Dan Snyder going from seemingly never selling the commanders to selling the commanders, how significant is what seems to be a deterioration of his relationship with Jerry Jones? Critical. It's critical. There's nobody in the NFL and arguably nobody in American sports with as much influence and power as Jerry Jones. And Jerry Jones, people need to understand, Jerry was a mentor to Dan Snyder. When Dan Snyder entered the league at the age of 34 in 1999, when he bought the franchise, Jerry took Dan under his wing. Jerry saw a lot of himself in Dan, and Dan ingratiated himself with Jerry. I did a profile of Jerry Jones in the summer of 2014 called Jerry Football. Spent almost the entire summer with Jerry Jones, hanging out with him in his suite. I was took a ride with him on his private jet, hung out with him at spring training. Snyder kept calling Jerry on Jerry's flip phone, asking for advice about a stadium back then. And Jerry would light up every time he would hear Snyder's voice because here's a man who knows the right buttons to press with Jerry Jones. And so their relationship runs deep. Uh, the, but during the whole name scandal, uh, Jerry was one of the last people among the owners supporting Dan on the name change uh, right up until the very end. And so Jerry was a firewall of support among the other owners for Dan Snyder all the way up until the end. And we reported out last October in that story that that support was eroding. Jerry Jones is all about the money at the end of the day. Loyalty is important to him, but the money's important too. And he saw what had happened to the Commanders franchise next to last or dead last in local revenues. The fact that Snyder had no ability to get a new stadium. And he basically pulled the ripcord on that relationship, we believe, last fall. And it was the last brick in the wall of support for Dan Snyder once he lost Jerry Jones. Uh, Jerry Jones bought the Cowboys in February 1989. Dan Snyder bought the Redskins in May 1999. Uh, Now, Jerry, since winning back-to-back Super Bowls for the 1992 and 1993 seasons, has not had nearly the postseason success that he wants. But overall, his ownership of the Cowboys blows away Dan's ownership of Washington. Uh, Knowing what you know about each guy, why is that? I mean, Dan has looked up to Jerry, and yet Dan has not come close to being the NFL owner that Jerry is. Wow, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, if you're going to only judge the franchises based on their valuations, then I would say that actually Snyder, despite being arguably the worst owner in American sports history, it hasn't mattered. He's selling the team for $6.05 billion after buying the team for $800 million in 1999 in less than 25 years. That's a hell of an appreciation, right, Al? So, you know, setting aside the fact that the commanders have had such a pitiful uh track record on the field, right, with only two playoff uh, appearances in, in, in 20 years under Snyder. Uh, setting all that aside, I think the difference is that Jerry Jones got a stadium. He was smart enough to get AT&T Stadium, which before SoFi Stadium was the crown jewel of uh, NFL stadiums in America. Uh, Jerry is just a marketing wizard and knows how to make his teams relevant despite their mediocrity on the field. Um, he's done so much. I've had owners tell me that he, Jerry Jones has personally put more money in their pockets than anybody else. He's the master at this. 
whereas Snyder has not. Jerry has also very smartly buried some scandals that he has had in a way that Dan Snyder has not been so effective at doing. For instance, uh, Jerry Jones's longtime PR man, Rich Dalrymple, I broke this story uh, a little over a year ago at ESPN. Uh, he was caught up in a scandal where he was spying or accused of spying on cheerleaders, Cowboys cheerleaders, as they changed in the Cowboys locker room. There was an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement signed with the four young women that were there who made the allegation. Money was paid to them. And it wasn't until just this, uh, this all happened in 2015, by the way, this alleged incident. And it wasn't until early last year that I discovered it and wrote it. So I think Jerry has been more successful in keeping his skeletons in the closet than Snyder has been. And, uh, and that's made, obviously, a very, very big difference. We're talking Dan Snyder and the sale of the Commanders with ESPN senior writer Don Van Nata Jr. You referenced the report that you had on Dan that came out this past February 28th. Uh, The report was about uh, this disputed $55 million loan that Dan took out in December 2018. One of my biggest takeaways from that piece and from other aspects of what has happened with Dan is that he does seem to have a cash flow problem, a money problem. Uh, Do you think that if he didn't have this cash problem, that he still would be selling the commanders because he has the loan money from buying out the disgruntled minority partners uh, that he has to pay back. He has a new stadium that he has to build, but may not have the money for. Is Dan selling the commanders more about his money problem than any scandal or investigation? Or is that an oversimplification of things? I don't know if it's as simple as that. I do think that that is the main reason, Al. I think that the fact that he was cash poor and the allegation made by his three billionaire partners who owned 40% of the team, who had no idea he had taken out a $55 million credit line with Bank of America and made an out, made a series of allegations very serious ones that Snyder was using the team as his personal piggy bank and, you know, charging the team millions of dollars to put the team logo on his private plane as an advertising fee. It looked from all of the evidence that we saw in that arbitration petition that Snyder was inventing ways to get more cash in his pocket. You know, and they alleged very clearly those three billionaire limited partners, and they wanted the NFL to look into this, that Snyder was guilty of you know, financial misconduct with a team that they own 40% of. And as we reported, the NFL had no interest in any of those allegations. They shut down the arbitration in a matter of 48 hours and uh, and quickly moved to supervising a buyout by Snyder of those three limited partners. And that gets to his current debt. So, you know, I've been saying and I've been reporting and have heard since uh, since earlier this year that Snyder owes roughly $1 billion to Bank of America. That is a whopping amount, you would think, right? At least the, the debt service on it alone is a lot, but it ain't that much when you consider he's about to sell for $6 billion. So a billion dollars is going to go off the top and extinguish that debt, and he's still going to walk away with billions of dollars for selling the team. But I do think that, I think that's a principal reason. I think another main reason is the lack of support among the NFL owners. They've had it with him. Part of it is because he can't get a new stadium. Part of it is because the franchise is in such dire straits. But part of it is when they discovered, many of them last October, that Snyder was bad-mouthing them and saying he had dirt on them and and then saying the NFL is a mafia and he can blow up everybody, including the commissioner, that rubbed a lot of owners the wrong way, Al. And I really believe that, you know, at that moment, that was it. You don't have the owners in your corner and you're done. And I don't think it was a coincidence. It's just three weeks after our story dropped. 
Snyder and Tanya announced they were going to sell the team. Yeah, the timing was undeniable. By the way, the document that served as the foundation for that February 28th report on Dan Snyder, uh, that arbitration petition, am I right in thinking that the NFL is not happy about you having gained access to that document? Because that was a high-level document, uh, the likes of which a few, if any people, in the media ever see. They're not pleased. No, they are not pleased that that landed uh, in my hands. The NFL loves the arbitration process for multiple reasons. One is they can control it. Uh, the arbitrator uh, who is in charge of that dispute uh, by among Snyder and his limited partners uh, is a lawyer who does a lot of work for the NFL. So it's already somebody looking out more for the NFL's interests, certainly than the limited partners' interests. That was their view of it. Uh, and they, you know, right now there's a dispute going on between John Gruden and the NFL over those leaked emails in Nevada, in the Nevada courts. It's now uh, being appealed to the Nevada Supreme Court. The NFL, again, there wants that process to be handled by an arbitrator. The benefit of that is when an arbitration process happens, everything happens behind closed doors. There's no public discovery. There's no depositions that reporters like me and folks like you can read and make public. All the dirty laundry stays shielded. And so, yes, there was uh, a lot of angst and concern uh, at 345 Park Avenue that I was able to get my hands on that arbitration petition for sure. Well, it, of course, is a credit to you that you got your hands on that document. Uh, Your report with ESPN senior writer Seth Wickersham that came out this past Friday afternoon, that Dan Snyder and his lawyers are lobbying the NFL to limit the release of attorney Mary Jo White's report on her investigation. Uh, Your report came out on Friday in the 1 p.m. Eastern hour. And then out of nowhere, this joint announcement from the Snyders and Josh Harris of a sale and purchase agreement came out on Friday in the 4 p.m. Eastern hour. Uh, Was this just coincidence or did your report lead to that announcement being made? I'm not sure. Uh, I've I've had uh, different explanations told to me by different people. Uh, And and really, quite frankly, the only people that really know uh, are the Snyders, uh, Josh Harris himself, maybe a couple of members of his uh, of his uh, investor group, uh, and maybe some of the lawyers around them and Bank of America. I can tell you that the reason why the story dropped when it dropped is there were intensifying conversations going on last week that my colleague Seth Wickersham and I were picking up on about this issue of the Mary Jo White report and what was going to happen with it. She's in the home stretch of her work. We've had multiple sources tell us that. We reported it last Friday. Uh, You know, Dan Snyder has refused to speak with her. We know that. And so the question now, Al, is what's going to happen with those findings? Is there going to be a full, complete report, which we didn't see with Beth Wilkinson, as you'll recall? It was more of a summary that came out on July 2nd, 2021, right before the July 4th holiday weekend, that Snyder was going to step away from the team. Is it going to be sort of a sanitized, watered-down version, to use Lisa Banks' language? Or is it going to be a fulsome, detailed, complete report Two very serious allegations are made about either sexual harassment or sexual misconduct uh, directly against Snyder. And I should say Snyder has denied those allegations. I want to make that very clear. Uh, But Mary Jo White has been at this for 15 months now, since February of 2022. And so we were hearing all of this and picked up on it that this was a very, very important matter for Snyder. But at the same time, and we also reported this, he doesn't have much leverage. 
you know, what, what is his leverage here to force the NFL to not reveal this? Now, some of it doesn't look good for the NFL. Uh, and, you know, and I, I, I had said that Friday afternoon on some Washington radio stations. That's also something to consider here. The NFL doesn't want every last bit of this out either. So where we end up, how much in the middle this is or how bad it will be for Snyder remains to be seen. But it's a good question. It was very odd that just in a matter of a few hours after the Snyder spokesperson to us adamantly denied that there was any truth to what we were reporting, uh, we had a statement that the sale uh, agreement had been made between Snyder and the Harris Group. Uh, this potential indemnifying of Dan Snyder, uh, the Washington Post, this past February 27th broke the news that uh, Dan wants other NFL owners to indemnify him against any future legal liability and expenses if he sells the team. Uh, how likely is any indemnifying of Dan, do you think? I don't think it's likely. Uh, and I believe that that's still part uh, of Snyder's wish list. His, you know, his wish list at the top is to uh, take as many teeth out of, the, out of the Mary Jo White report as he can. And I believe he also wants to be uh, indemnified. Um, but my understanding about it is there really is not much taste uh, either among Roger Goodell or the owners uh, to make that happen. So, um Everything when it comes to uh, these sales um, or, or any negotiation is leverage. And um, now, is some secret deal been struck that we don't know about um, with Snyder uh, and, and the commissioner? It's possible. Um, you know, certainly the league has looked the other way on the Beth Wilkinson allegations um, and some other things. And certainly the allegations made by the limited partners on the $55 million credit line. So there is a history here, but not that I'm aware of. I know that the league really just wants him gone and um, he needs to go. I think part of it is a financial motive, as we've discussed. It's also just partly political that he doesn't have the support of the owners anymore. We reported on Friday, Al, uh, it was a paragraph on our story that didn't get as much attention as I thought, it was maybe because it was deep in the story, that Snyder has zero support among the owners right now. That's what Seth and I were picking up in our conversations over the last couple of weeks. So, um, that's not a strong hand to be trying to play when, if you're trying to get indemnified from future legal action. Now, whether or not Harris is willing to cover that, uh, that I don't know. That is a, that's a question that's been raised. I just don't know the answer to that one. Uh, there is so much to take in with this sale of the commanders, of course. Uh, heck, the Washington Post on Wednesday afternoon came out with a report, uh, the report saying that Josh Harris's deal to buy the commanders includes an earnout. Uh, a structure that would provide Dan Snyder with a deferred payment of an amount contingent on the franchise reaching specified financial benchmarks. Uh, bottom lining everything, what's your best guess as to when the sale of the commanders to the Josh Harris group is finalized? It's tough. You know, we have the owners meetings next week in Minneapolis. Um, it's possible by then there will be maybe a tentative vote of some kind, but I doubt it. I think that because the league office is still doing due diligence on all of the limited partners that Josh Harris has brought in uh, to get the money that he needs with the very strict NFL rules on the sale of a franchise and, you know, how much debt you can take on versus cash, the cash to debt ratio and everything else. Uh, I would be surprised if we saw a final vote 
uh, on the sale uh, next month, but easily or, or next week, I should say, but easily in the coming next month to two months, if I had to predict, there could be a special meeting of the owners to make that final vote. So it happens, you know, sometime before training camp begins. Final question for you. Uh, we on Tuesday afternoon had the report from Seth Wickersham and ESPN Commanders insider John Keim. Uh, that report featured these very bullish financial projections for the Commanders as detailed in a prospectus that the Josh Harris Group had put together. Uh, knowing what you know about NFL ownership, uh, what's your outlook for the Harris Group as the ownership of the Commanders? Well, I have to say, obviously, because they can't just write a check for a new stadium the way Jeff Bezos could, uh, that it's Bezos would have been the ideal owner. And, you know, he may have his sights on the Seattle Seahawks, and that may be why he decided to sit this one out. Um, I found one of the most interesting things in the Wickersham Kime report on that prospectus, you know, that was put together so Harris could bring more people into the investment tent is that estimate of $1.5 billion in public money that he is projecting he can get. That would set a record in North America if that amount of money, uh, windfall public money comes to uh, building of a new stadium on any of these um, uh, kind of prospectus uh, you know, reports that are put out. Uh, it's always a little bit of a pie in the sky view. So um, it's probably going to be less than that. But I think to answer your question, Al, it's hard for me because I know that um, certainly the fact that so many limited partners had to be brought in, I know that just generally owners don't like that. They, you know, prefer like the Walton family that, you know, bought the Broncos, that most of it comes from one single source. This is a sort of a conglomerate of different people. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing a kind of slow walk and a very careful look at the financials on this. Um, so I don't know whether they're the ideal owners uh, or not. It's, it remains to be seen, certainly when compared to Dan Snyder, though. Uh, they're going to have Josh Harris and his investor are going to have the longest honeymoon in Washington, D.C. history uh, once they buy the team. And I think that a lot of those projections that you saw in that prospectus are based on that, that that people that have just tired of Dan Snyder are going to give these new owners every break, every chance and be patient that the franchise could be turned around. And I think even the Snyders recognize that, interestingly. They recognize as well that the toxicity that they brought, um, once they're out of the picture, uh, the franchise can only be uh, on a road to recovery. That is so funny and so ironic when you consider that one of Dan Snyder's fatal flaws as Washington owner, at least to me, has been a lack of self-awareness. And yet him acknowledging that him being out as owner could lead to a financial windfall for the team is a great example of self-awareness. Even he recognizes that him being out will mean more money coming in. It's incredible. Yeah, no, that's right. And you're right. And and the and the lack of self-awareness, it, it, it's, it's just so true. Uh, I mean, the fact that even just a year and a half ago, he was saying, if we could only get a marquee quarterback, all of our problems will go away instantly. I mean, just the crazy idea that it, that's all it would take, that all the toxic workplace culture issues, all of the allegations made about him personally, all of the financial problems, you can't get a new stadium. Hey, if you can get a marquee quarterback, uh, everything will be okay. <clears throat> it is something. These last 24 years have been something. Uh, the great Don Van Nader Jr., ESPN senior writer, uh, his reporting in the Dan Snyder saga has been tremendous. Uh, Don, a salute to you. Uh, thank you for your time and all the best. 
Thank you, Al. Same to you. Always a pleasure. All right. Excellent stuff from Don Van Natta Jr. Uh, First of all, how about what he said about Dan Snyder and Jerry Jones? Uh, Don saying that he, in spending so much of the summer of 2014 with Jerry, witnessed Dan constantly calling Jerry about the Skin Stadium situation. Uh, Also interesting to hear Don highlight that stadium item from the ESPN report on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, The report about the Josh Harris Group prospectus. Uh, The prospectus estimated that the Commanders would have a new stadium by 2031 and that Virginia would offer the best incentives for a new stadium up to $1.5 billion. You know, on Wednesday's show, episode 574, wondered who leaked this prospectus to ESPN. I'm thinking that someone in or connected to the Josh Harris Group leaked the prospectus and for the purpose of the stadium, for the purpose of inciting this three-way bidding war between Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, because the stadium portion of the report has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, Officials in D.C. and Maryland saw that $1.5 billion number, and already we're seeing movement toward a three-way bidding war. Uh, D.C. Council member Kenyon R. McDuffie, he wrote a piece for the Washington Post that oh so interestingly came out on Wednesday morning. Headline, quote, bring the commander's home, end quote. Uh, Well, if you enjoyed my conversation with Don Van Dotta Jr., please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. You want Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you want Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review doesn't have to be long, can be just a sense or two, but the ratings and the reviews help out the podcast a lot. And so thank you very much for doing them. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, go figure the Nationals' opponent right now, the Miami Marlins. Uh, The Marlins for this 2023 regular season have a hideous run differential of minus 54. Yeah, the Marlins have been outscored by 54 runs, and yet the Marlins are 22 and 21, a winning record despite having been outscored by 54 runs. For comparison's sake, the Nats have a run differential of minus 22, and yet are 18 and 25. Uh, the Marlins now are an incredible 14 and 1 in one run games 
as uh, each of the first two games of this three-game series for the Nats at the Marlins has been a one-run loss. Uh, Tuesday evening, a 5-4 walk-off loss despite the Nats overcoming a 2-1 eighth inning deficit. Wednesday evening, a 4-3 loss. Uh, The Marlins are frauds, okay? They are not as good as the team's record suggests, but whatever. That's a Marlins conversation. Uh, For the Nats, so the principal item to me from this game on Wednesday evening was that Mackenzie Gore was the Nats' starting pitcher, and uh, how he does is of extreme importance for our rebuilding Nats. Uh, Gore on Wednesday evening did not have a great outing. Four runs in five of the third innings. He gave up five hits, a home run, a triple, a double, and two singles. He issued two walks, and two wild pitches. Now, he did have seven strikeouts, and he did throw a lot of strikes, uh, 93 pitches, 60 strikes versus 33 balls. Uh, Gore, in the bottom of the second, allowed a run on a walk, a wild pitch, a single, and an RBI sack fly, uh, all in succession with one out, and he then issued a second wild pitch. Uh, Gore, in the bottom of the fourth, allowed two runs on a leadoff single by Luis Arise through the right side of the infield, and then a first pitch, two-run home run, by Jorge Soler to center field for a 3-2 Marlins lead of the homer when it projected 407 feet per stat cast. Uh, also, Gore gave up a one-out triple by Gene Segura to deep left center field despite Segura having been down in the count at 1.12. And Gore in the bottom of the six allowed a run on a one-out walk of Jorge Soler and then a one-out opposite field RBI double by Brian Dela Cruz to the uh, right center field gap for a 4-2 Marlins lead. Uh, Mackenzie Gore was coming off a strange outing, 3-2 loss to the New York Mets at Nationals Park this past Friday night. He did not allow a run, but he lasted for just four innings due to throwing an astounding 96 pitches. Four shutout innings on 96 pitches. Uh, Gore now in this 2023 regular season, nine starts, ERA of 369, whip of 145 strikeouts per nine innings of 11.27. The strikeouts are great. Uh, He is putting a good number of guys on base, but he overall has been a lot more good uh, than bad. Uh, The Nats in this 4-3 loss at the Marlins on Wednesday evening had nine hits, but drew just one walk, went 0-5 with runners in scoring position. Uh, Two of the Nats hits were extra base hits, and the guys who got those hits are worth talking about here. Uh, Corey Dickerson, uh, he on Wednesday evening started a major league game for the first time since April 1st. Uh, when he suffered a left calf strain. Uh, He ended up being on the 10-day injured list from April 2nd until this past Monday, May 15th. Uh, He, on Wednesday evening, was the Nats' starting DH and number six batter as uh, the Nats' usual DH, uh, Joey Manessis, Uh, He now is on the paternity list. Uh, The Nats on Wednesday put Manessis on the paternity list and recalled infielder slash outfielder Jake Alou from AAA Rochester. Well, Corey Dickerson on Wednesday evening, two for four with a solo homer and a single. Uh, And this was some homer. Uh, Dickerson in the Nats two-run second, a one-out two-run homer off the second deck in right field for a 2-0 Nats lead of the homer winner projected 432 feet First stat cast and Dickerson in the Nats one run seventh, a leadoff single through the right side of the infield on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, Corey Dickerson can hit. Uh, the Nats this past January signed him as a free agent, a one-year $2.25 million contract. This season is his age 34 season, so it's not like he's some potential building block for the Nats, but Dickerson from 2019 through 2022, over 1,151 Major League regular season plate appearances, had an OPS plus of 105. 100 is league average, 105 is above average. So the guy can hit, and hit he did 
on Wednesday evening. Uh, also, has Jamer Candelario gotten going? Uh, he on Wednesday evening as an at starting third baseman and number five batter, three for four with a double and two singles. Uh, Candelario in that Nats two-run second, a one-out full count opposite field single to left field. Candelario in the top of the fourth, a one-out double off the right field warning track on a one-two pitch. And Candelario in the top of the ninth, a leadoff single to left field despite having been down to the count at one point. 1-2. Uh, Candelario in the 5-4 walk-off loss at the Marlins on Tuesday evening as an ad starting third baseman and number four batter. Got on base four times, three for three with a double, an RBI single, another single and a walk. And Candelario in the 10-3 win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park on Monday as an ad starting third baseman and number six batter, two for four with a triple and a single. He did also commit a throwing error, but still, Jamer Candelario, a lot better lately. Uh, the Nats' bullpen on Wednesday evening was good. Uh, two Nats relievers combined for two and two-thirds scoreless innings. Andres Machado tossed one and a third scoreless innings, and Coral Edwards Jr. tossed one and a third scoreless innings with two strikeouts. Uh, Edwards came into the game in the uh, bottom of the seventh with a runner on first, two outs, and the Nats down 4-3, and he struck out the Marlins' number two batter and designated hitter Garrett Cooper on four pitches. Big spot, good job there by Edwards, who has been struggling, but at least has been better over his last two outings now, Uh, and then Edwards uh, tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth despite giving up a leadoff first pitch double by Luisa Rice on a fly ball to shallow center field on a strange play. So again, a double to shallow center. The Nats center fielder, Alex Cole, uh, failed to make a sliding forward catch and then like lay dead on the field. I mean, he just lay there, stomach down while the ball was still in play. Now, you know, watching this, I said to myself, well, geez, I hope Alex Cole is okay. Well, he got up and stayed in the game. So I don't know if he was like momentarily banged up, but then fine. I don't know if he was like wallowing in uh, the self-pity of having failed to make the sliding forward catch, but uh, that was not a great look for Alex Cole. You know, he fails to make the catch and then he just lays there like, uh, you know, he's just been hit with a cannonball or something. I don't know. That was, <laughs> that was bizarre what Alex Cole did. A strange double in a lot of ways uh, right there uh, for Luis Arise, but good job by Carl Edwards Jr. Uh, also regarding the Nats, uh, former Nats starting pitcher Anibal Sanchez spoke with reporters on Wednesday afternoon at uh, Lone Depot Park in Miami. Uh, Anibal Sanchez, in a social media post on Tuesday night, announced his retirement. Uh, Anibal had a very good career. He pitched for the Nats, of course, uh, but also the Marlins, the Detroit Tigers, and the Atlanta Braves. Uh, He will forever be remembered as a key part of the 2019 World Series champion Nats. NLCS Game 1, a 2-0 Nats win at the St. Louis Cardinals, October 11th, 2019. Anibal Sanchez in that game flirted with a no-hitter, ultimately tossed seven and two-thirds scoreless innings. He, in the 2019 regular season, struggled over his first nine starts. Then, in May 2019, went on the 10-day injured list with a left hamstring strain, and then was a lot better the rest of that season. Uh, He did then struggle for the Nats in the 2020 regular season, did not pitch in the majors in the 2021 regular season, and then actually was brought back by the Nats via a minor league contract in March 2022. He actually made their season opening rotation, but then was out with a cervical neck impingement from April 10th, 2022 to July 14th, 2022. He initially struggled, but then actually ended up being all right for the Nats uh, as last season went on. But here to me is the biggest takeaway in terms of the Nats of the now. 
Uh, Anibal Sanchez joins an already long list of players who played for the Nats since that 2019 World Series championship season, uh, for whom the Nats ended up being those players' last major league team. The Nats got bad basically immediately after winning the 2019 World Series. Uh, The team uh, being bad started with that COVID-shortened 2020 season. But recent players for whom the Nats ended up being those players' last team before retiring. Anibal Sanchez, first baseman slash DH Ryan Zimmerman, uh, outfielder Gerardo Parra, the baby shark, uh, catcher Alex Avila, infielder Jordy Mercer, relievers Steve Ciszek and Will Harris, uh, perhaps soon starting pitcher Steven Strasburg. And note, I'm not including guys who were on the Nats in recent years, but now aren't playing in the majors, but haven't necessarily retired. Uh, people like shortstop Alcides Escobar and infielder Cesar Hernandez and starting pitcher Eric Fetty. A lot of older players and fading players for the Nats in recent years. Remember, the Nats won the 2019 World Series as the oldest team in the majors. Uh, That was a fun distinction, uh, but that also was a telling distinction. And it's good, at least now, that the Nats are playing at the major league level with a good number of guys who are younger and who are potential building blocks, potential pieces for the future. That feels a lot better uh, than losing with older players, uh, as was the case these last few years. Game three for the Nats at the Marlins is on Thursday afternoon at 110. Trevor Williams will be the Nats starting pitcher. Well, do not look now, but the Orioles are three and a half games behind the Tampa Bay Rays for the best record in the majors. Uh, The mighty Rays, they lost on Wednesday night, uh, an 8-7-10 inning loss at the New York Mets. And the O's, they won on Wednesday evening, a 3-1 win over the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in game three of a four-game series as the O's, Joe Angel, were again in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. That is correct, Joe. The win column. Uh, the O's now are 28 and 15. That is the second best record in the American League. That is the second best record in the majors. Uh, the O's since their four and five start are 24 and 10. Uh, the biggest nit to pick with the O's in this 2023 regular season has been their starting pitching. Uh, Two Orioles starting pitchers who had been struggling in particular were Dean Kramer and Kyle Bradish. Well, Kramer in the Orioles 7-3 win over the Angels on Tuesday evening was at least solid for a third consecutive start, and Bradish in this 3-1 win over the Angels on Wednesday evening was good for a second consecutive start. Uh, Bradish one run in six and two-thirds innings. Uh, He had five strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up just four hits, a solo homer by Mike Trout, no shame in that, uh, and three singles. And Bradish threw a lot of strikes, 94 pitches, 63 strikes versus just 31 balls. Uh, He, in his previous outing, was very good. 6-3 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates at Oriole Park at Camden Yards this past Friday night, May 12th. Uh, Bradish in that game, one run unearned in six innings with six strikeouts. Uh, Kyle Bradish had a very up-and-down 2022 regular season, but when he was up, he was way up. Uh, I think back to last August 26th, a 2 nothing win at the then-American League-leading Houston Astros. Uh, Bradish in that game, eight scoreless innings. 
Uh, more good stuff from the Orioles' bullpen on Wednesday evening. Three Orioles relievers combined for two and a third scoreless and hitless innings with four strikeouts. Uh, Danny Coulomb, he came into the game in the top of the seventh with a runner on first, two outs, and the O's nursing a 3-1 lead, and he induced a foul out by pinch hitter Luis Renjifo for the third out. Uh, Yanir Cano, the Cano show, another gem of an outing, a perfect top of the eighth with two strikeouts. Uh, Yanir Cano now, since being recalled by the O's from AAA Norfolk on April 14th, 17 games, 21 and two-thirds innings, zero runs allowed, an ERA of zero, uh, a whip of 0.18, and a strikeouts per nine innings of 10.38. And then Felix Batista, a scoreless top of the ninth, with two strikeouts for the save. Uh, One of the strikeouts, a swinging strikeout of the great Shohei Otani. Batista now in this 2023 regular season, ERA of 135 and a strikeouts per nine innings of, you ready for this? 17.1. Yeah, 17.1 strikeouts per nine innings. Felix Batista over just 20 innings has 38 strikeouts. Uh, The O's on Wednesday evening, 11 hits and two walks, uh, three of the 11 hits were extra base hits. Uh, Austin Hayes is the Orioles starting left fielder and number six batter, one for three with a solo homer and a walk. Uh, He, in a one-run Orioles fifth, had a two-out full count opposite field solo homer to right field for a 3-1 Orioles lead, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. Gunnar Henderson, he is the Orioles starting third baseman and number five batter, two for four with a triple and a single. And Adley Rutschman as the Orioles starting catcher and number two batter, one for four with a double. Uh, Game four for the O's against the Angels is on Thursday afternoon at 1235. The guy who has been the Orioles' best starting pitcher so far this season, Tyler Wells, will be the Orioles' starting pitcher for this game. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 576, will provide you with more on the Commanders. Also, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's on Thursday afternoon at 1.10 of Game 3 of a three-game series at the Miami Marlins. The O's on Thursday afternoon at 12.35 of Game 4 of a four-game series against the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So have a great rest of your Thursday, and I'll talk to you on Friday. Position flexed.